Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Good morning, Lucy. It is a little before lunch, isn't it? It is. Where are you leading me, Alex? Hello, by the way. Hello. I'm leading <laughs> you to this week's whimsical chat because it is it is the summer so we've decided to be playful in our chats and this week we are talking about writers and their favorite food and drink yes I mean I've had a banana today and a lot of coffee I don't know about you (laughs) actually I too have had a banana and a lot of coffee which is a bit like two of our writers from later on but my banana was not in the form of a daiquiri. I'm bringing it up now because I know that you're going to bring it up, <laughs> basically. I must tell the listeners that, as we know, Lucy is enthusiastic in her admiration of Terry Pratchett. And there is no area in which we can go where he does not rear his wonderful, much-missed, behatted head. Very good. And even... Yeah when we are talking about drinks. And we know, for example, that we're going to be talking about Dorothy Parker and Ernest Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald and people who, quite frankly, might have done a little bit better if they'd stuck to the, you know, the diet seven up from time to time. Mm. But I didn't think you could get T. Pratchett into this too. And yes, of course you can. Yeah, because his favourite drink, I think, was a banana daiquiri. And there's one of his books, which I can't remember actually now, where someone... They have a girls' night out and they drink a number of cocktails, but it was known that his favourite one was a banana daiquiri. And I think the librarian, who is, of course, an orangutan, the librarian of the magical university library, I think he likes banana daiquiris. And every time I think about it, I think, ooh, I'd really like one. I'm not sure I've ever had one. Oh, yes, I have. I have. And I must say, I love a banana flavoured cocktail because it's sort of Mm, like... It's like a milkshake, basically. It's like getting a milkshake, isn't it? Yeah. It's not as stylish as we might perhaps hope. And you and I (laughs) much, much It's not a cool drink. (laughs) Austerely beautiful drinks, what we like. We would much more... All right, if you want to be all sophisticated, A sort of Vespa martini or something like that wouldn't work. Go on, However, what I really enjoyed reading about as we were thinking about these things was writers' favourite foods and of course French writers were where we turned to I mm. mean Zola you know I know that Zola I mean he wrote a lot of books and as we know and they were very serious and they have told us about the human condition yep, yep so yep. obviously he needed something decent to eat I did not know he was a gourmand on quite the scale he was nor such an adventurous one this appears in the diary of Edmund de Goncourt, who talks about dinners at Zola's home. Reindeer tongue, green wheat soup, whatever that is, truffle tuggy, kangaroo. Mm, well, how did he get kangaroo in Paris in the, you know, and whenever it was, she said, not knowing exactly the year. Well, I don't know. Or how did he get reindeer tongue, to be honest? And why? Why? Yes, why is more of Even a Even if you can, should you? as we're often forced to consider on this podcast. There's this brilliant thing that he says, that he says in the diary, or Goncourt has him saying in the diary, it's my only vice, meaning food, and at home, when there's nothing good to eat for dinner, I'm unhappy, really unhappy. That's all there is. Nothing else exists for me. Oh, well, so I can't... you might think he was interested in the human condition of books, but really, <laughs> he was like, where's my, where's my next meal of reindeer tongue? I'm sure that's not all he ate. No, no. He, I think he actually liked kind of basic things. He was just a sort of showy entertainer. 
Yeah. The idea of the kitchen supper had not yet been born in his circles, I suppose. He wouldn't be having a toasty, would he? No. I love the idea that Georges Saint was good cook, really interested in food, so that everybody who came to visit her bought her interesting things. So Alexandre Dumas brought her a pineapple. Again, probably not your everyday sort of kitchen no. gift. And he was a great foodie as well. Well, he just kind of enjoyed himself to the max generally, including with food. I know it's good, isn't it, that your guest yeah. would be like, I've brought you something weird and wonderful, yeah. which a pineapple probably was. You mentioned you had a banana and coffee. I like Balzac's. He's quite well known. He was kind of obsessed with coffee. So says here he was known to drink as many as 50 cups of coffee a day. That sounds very bad for you. It really does. Really bad for you. Listen to this one. Don't do this, listeners, ever. And sometimes he would have a fire me up spoonful of pure coffee grounds on an empty stomach just to kind of get him going, to give him a bit of va-va-voom. That cannot be a good idea. It's clearly a very bad idea. And I mean, he doesn't look in the absolute peak of health, does he? In the photographs we, we have of him. I don't want to be judgmental, but, <laughs> you know... It doesn't look much worse than Flaubert or, or Zola, to be fair. Uh, no, I suppose not. Anyway, it's enough to make you terribly hungry, although not to send you in the direction of reindeer tongue from Lapland or truffled turkey. No, that, that sounds a bit much, doesn't it? Well, obviously, you know, lunch is all that exists if you're Zola, but not all that exists for us. We have much more interesting fish to fry. And this week we have dipped into the archive and found novelist Gwendolyn Riley in praise of cultural critic Michael Bracewell, whose novel Unfinished Business was published at the beginning of the year. And historian Ruth Skur joined us in February to talk about the last work by her friend Janet Malcolm. Unfinished Business reintroduces us to Martin Knight, first encountered in the Conclave, but now very much older. The novelist Gwendolyn Riley has reviewed the book in this week's paper and joins us now. Welcome, Gwendolyn. My pleasure. He is clearly somebody whose work you are very connected to. I mean, it seems from your review that you have read him for a long time and, and, and very sort of deeply. Is that is that fair? Why not? Yes, I think it is fair. I was thinking the other day that I was well into my teens before I realised there was such a thing as um, a contemporary English novelist, I think. You know, I was reading my classics and I thought novelists were Victorians or Russians or at a push from the 1920s. And then at some point I began to realise there were writers writing today. And um, yeah, at some point I came across Michael Bracewell's first novel, The Crypto Amnesia Club, which I think was published in 1988. So maybe I found it in a charity shop or something and was struck by the cover, the title. I have to say by the author photo as well. Good looking guy. And, um, <laughs> so that's another good reason to buy a book. <laughs> yeah. And um, so stylish. And it's, I mean, the phrases and the brooding quality of that book really struck me. And I think there's bits of it I could probably still say off by heart. Yeah. So that, that's where I came across him first. And then, yeah, we'd sort of pick those books up. Fiction was that first way into his work for you. Oh, goodness. Absolutely. I, you know, I don't know if I've, I haven't read the Roxy Music biography. Sorry, Michael. Um, I haven't read the books about art because that's not my world. I mean, I, I like art, but I, I don't I don't really read about it. And I know he does a catalogue copy and things like that and essays on artists, but I haven't I haven't looked at them at all. So for me, the last time I, I read him was, um, yeah, 2001 when Perfect Tense came out. 
which, yeah, I remember really loving. That's a book about not dissimilar when you read the first few pages of Unfinished Business. This new book's not dissimilar from Perfect Tense, which was about this man who works in an, in an office in the city in London and sort of one day just doesn't go in and has this um, strange odyssey around London. And very eerie, and very affecting, and um, yeah, really good book. It's the style. I mean, sorry, that's such a, a sort of obvious thing mm-hmm. to say. But I mean, Unfinished Business, when it opens, here we are meeting Martin Knight again. He's very much older, as I said, he's 57. And we kind of know immediately that he's in kind of trouble. He's divorced. He's in poor health. I mean, his, everything's kind of hurting in those first few pages. He has given up smoking, even though there's a kind of rather wonderful sort of, well, a kind of elegy to cigarettes and what they have meant to him. He has given it up, but he's still drinking a fair bit. Oh, yes. He's not the matinee idol that the sort of two pages of the prologue of the novel give us via a photograph, don't they? There's a kind of framing to this book. Mm. Yeah, the prologue is very interesting and um, it's very touching, actually. It's, sort of, it's him sitting for a portrait almost. So it's a, a memory of him when I think he's 17, sitting on a garden chair while his girlfriend is very much in love with him, takes a picture of him and they describe the resulting photograph of this handsome young man. The word that I lit on in my review was almost because the photograph, his look is described as almost fierce. And as you read the book, you realise quite how much that almost admits because there's still that nervousness there and that sense of not quite or that sense of taint and worry maybe even. So as the book unfolds, it's written in the third person, but very closely from his point of view at at certain points. And it's him looking back and thinking, where did it all go wrong or where did he veer off a right path or a path that would have led him somewhere else I suppose and there is this sense of paint or even degeneracy and he, he traces it back at a certain point I mean there's different things he, he lights upon but he traces it back at a certain point to his first cigarette which to the young Martin indicated a rebel attitude and cool and glamour but that has left him you know in pain as he tries to climb up to the station and you know gasping for breath at certain points. It sounds as though in some ways it's about promise and where the promise goes or promises that are unfulfilled or kind of spoiled somehow. Is that Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, you get the sense that at a certain point Martin was, when he was a teenager, he was beguiled by a certain idea of life and it's never quite let him go. I mean, we all were at that certain age mm. beguiled by a certain idea of life and, you know, you stick with it or you don't. And it seems like with him he's beginning to feel menaced by the fact that he's stuck with it and thinking, where on earth has this led me? And I, that's I think the, the title is so interesting. Such a great title and it's quite sly in a way because it could almost imply a threat. I suppose it's whether he has unfinished business with life or whether life has unfinished business with him. And it's sort of both as the book unfolds. You realise that there are still still dreadful things to come. I mean, he really suffers. He really suffers physically and then there's certain events that happen with his daughter and um, yeah it's bad but he's very brave he's very dogged again unfinished business and he's quite diligent and it's just really interesting it had some very eerie moments this book I found it exactly that and that sort of mapping onto the city Mm. which is is kind of I mean it, it announces itself you know pretty sort of obviously it's not you know that's not my brilliant textual Uh, analysis because as it opens you know we're in Cambridge Heath Road near Bethnal Green, Dalston, Hackney this kind of 
just just to the east end mm-hmm. of the center of London. And then very quickly he starts to mention, you know, Piccadilly and South Kensington and these sort of memories of going to these kind of beautiful arcades and squares and and, and rich people's houses. And it seems that there is this, you know, for people, you know, not familiar with the places I first mentioned, Bethnal Green, etc. I mean, they have, they certainly have a kind of a chicness and a sort of creativity to them and a huge kind of interest. But they're not, they're not what you call posh, are they? And he's sort of, he seems to have almost kind of found himself slightly sort of washed up in this bit of London. Yeah, definitely. There's a bit where he says old streets and new buildings and... It's a fantastic London novel, and there are strange corners and tube stations and bits of it that they'll have. They have indelible scenes on them, which whenever I'm in those places now, you know, bits of by Olympia in Kensington, near where I, we live, and um, Holland Park tube station. There's a very moving scene just on the platform on one of those benches. They'll stick with me now. There's a Malcolm Lowry poem that begins, "Trapped in the Liverpool of self, I haunt the guttered arcades of the past." In a way, Martin Knight is haunting the guttered arcades of the past, but in London. I also thought it was a brilliant novel of sort of London weather. I was thinking my previous favourite on that score was The Years by Virginia Woolf. She can capture, you know, is exactly what an early October afternoon in Hyde Park is like. Somehow she gets it. And it's very similar with this. You think, yeah, if we're talking about a February evening in the beginning of February, that, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of white skies and um, wintry skies in this book, a lot, because a lot of the vantage points where Martin Knight is looking out at the city they're a little bit elevated, like Cambridge Heath Station or, you know, various buildings he's in looking out from the window of his own flat. There's a sense that he's sort of psychically stranded and sort of physically a little bit elevated and above things and sort of looking out too. So, yeah. It sounds a bit like, um, I mean, not quite, but almost kind of Ian Sinclair psychogeography. That dread word. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I said it. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, it's in my notes, Lucy. You've oh, taken is it? the fall for me there. I'd written it down myself. And it is a dread word, <laughs> but Ian Sinclair, he does come to mind, doesn't he? Well, because just it just sounds so specific and so kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is. You, you're describing it much better than I can, but the sort of haunting of particular places and the giving of meaning and, and that's with the conjuring it up with the weather and everything. Yeah, I think in, a, in another world, maybe Martin Knight would have had a psychogeography blog, but no, not in the world of this book. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting, actually, how technology features or doesn't feature in this book, because he's very into his music, Martin, and there are certain songs that come back to him and little bits of lyrics. But the thing you don't have is him going around with his headphones in at all. And I thought that really fitted with the idea of him sort of remembering his past and on this strange quest to find out where things went wrong. He's not into distraction if he were really a nostalgist he could be listening to the damned or whoever it might be while he's walking around and I don't feel like he is quite he's after a different kind of meaning and I thought that was quite it's almost like that the fact that he's isolated is because he isn't distracting himself he isn't in that kind of technological you know rabbit hole that one could get into well, he sort of rules himself out of lots of things to do with modern life, mm. I think, doesn't mm-hmm. he, in a way. I'd also say he is clearly the sort of central character, this kind of close third person narration. But, I mean, there are other characters, not least his ex-wife, Marilyn, mm. who I found very moving also because she's kind of trying to sort of keep her life on the rails isn't she she's trying to keep sort of forging ahead in a way that he isn't exactly yeah Mm -hmm. it's largely about him but I mean a he's not solipsistic so we get a lot of his observation of people and 
I read a review, not mine, which described it as like um, a street photographer, the way he captures people he sees around London. I, I think I've thought of it more as a crowded sketchbook page. There's just lots of little pen portraits of people he sees. And then there are these other characters that we, we hear the, their stories sort of in parallel to his. And one of them is his ex-wife, Marilyn, who is the daughter of, I think maybe a sort of royal court free cinema type person, a sort of Primrose Hill Marxist, <laughs> very rich, very boho. And there's a brilliant phrase where they're described as determined to talk. They're quite <laughs> pompous. And, mm. So <laughs> there are those stories as well. And yeah, so while, while Martin is suffering, Marilyn is embarking on an affair with, you know, I mean, there's the rich in this book and then there's the super rich and she's having an affair or beginning a, a love affair with with someone who is super rich. So we get all that side of London as well, which is something I know nothing about, alas, but, you know, the, these very beautiful restaurants they're sort of stepping into silently because the carpets are so thick and uh, the marvellous engagement party that they have. So, again, there's so much in here. It's, it's such a short book as well. It's not 200 pages, mm. but it crams in. A hell of a lot. A hell of a lot. There's a phrase that you used. I mean, it's. I think you're describing that kind of framing narrator, but that sort of attitude of the novel is almost a talk with slides <laughs> at a historical society, <laughs> which really made, was, again, such a specific way of describing it. It immediately chimed with me. It was very, there is a little bit of let us show you what life is like, as well as this sort of very affecting kind of personal sort of interior story. God, absolutely, yeah. It's not solipsistic, even though this is this brooding man who, you know, when we see him speak to other characters in the book, his, his sentences are, you know, extremely stark and there's not much to them. Maybe, I mean, that image came to me of the talk and maybe that was because I was Googling Michael Bracewell and there's lots of YouTube videos of him doing that with, you know, um, artists that he's talking about. So you do see him pressing the button on the slide projection going, and here is Brian Ferry in 1984, whatever it might be. So maybe I had that image in my mind, but it did seem, especially for the prologue, I thought, yeah, that's it. It's let's examine the, let's examine these people. Is he a sort of specialist of the? It's the eighties and nineties. Is it? That's what he's written his criticism about. Is that right? I mean, not only that, but kind of not only that. Yeah, there was a book called The Nineties When Surface Was Depth, which I haven't read. And then there was this, and then there was Souvenir, this really interesting book that came out a couple of years ago. I'm wondering how hard. I mean, if he was writing this contemporaneously is that the word with or concurrently with unfinished mm. business I wonder how hard it was to disaggregate at points because they do this sort of golden period in Martin's life definitely coincides with what this strange elegy for that period souvenir was looking at so the London of the late 70s and early 80s especially that prologue that could be Martin sitting for one of the little portraits that make up souvenir which sort of goes from character to character in in this remembered London, but I suppose mm. quite quite different ways of looking at the past or what the past is is for. The souvenir felt more like an act of, um, you know, restoration or retrieval, and this one is there's a bit more of a urgency to his looking at the past or sharing. It's a bit more emotional, I suppose, personal. Um, but I, yeah, I wonder how how it was to write them both together. Mm. I mean, I don't know anything about him sort of biographically. I mean, personally speaking. And I don't, I'm, I'm not suggesting, you know, in, in any way that this is or isn't a sort of autobiographical novel. I don't know mm -hmm. how closely it mirrors, but there does seem to be a kind of interest in these particular figures mm. whose lives have been kind of shaped by their interest in aesthetics and observation. And the sort of question of whether actually that leads you down a path that sort of alienates you, I suppose, a word actually you use in the, and remark upon using in the review, but how it sort of, 
takes you away from really being properly sort of engaged with your own life. And, you know, there is our aesthetics are kind of dead end sometimes, I suppose. Absolutely. Surface and depth sort of question, isn't it? Yeah. No, it comes up again and again. And it's very foxing and very there was a line in the book that struck me and I did I didn't even know what to think of it and it kind of gave me the shivers and intrigued me at the same time where Martin says perhaps the pursuit of the interesting makes you invisible and I thought oh what do I think of that because <laughs> yeah, I what does that mean <laughs> I know should we be pursuing the boring I mean maybe well I know and because my whole thing is I absolutely adore people who pursue the interesting and who are interested in things other than themselves but in this case you feel like there's been some kind of weird card trick or some sleight of hand that has left Martin you know, not quite knowing where he is or who he is. Or, I mean, the end of the book is so interesting that, and the last lines are very moving and you feel like it's not quite clear whether the whole thing has been worth it because he's found the thing that I won't mention or if it's been a terrible wasting exercise. Anyway, makes you think. <laughs> it makes you think. <laughs> we should also say, I'm going to say, that it's also very funny. I mean, it's very funny on a sort of, observational and sentence level sometimes and there's a bit of characters described as archaically busty yes. I thought it was such a brilliant and Marilyn is wearing a coat and she's wondered if she's sort of she's dressed up to go on a date and she's wondering if she's gone too far with it and she thinks she just looks berserk <laughs> and it's a brilliant description of this coat which is sort of made in gay bachelor soft tweeds that I thought <laughs> just completely sort of opened up and like you kind of knew what that meant Still to come on the show, Ruth Skur on Janet Malcolm's brilliant focus. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the TLS podcast Summer Roundup. Here's Gwendolyn Riley speaking to us earlier in the year. Now comes Still Pictures, a series of reflections centred on photographs. The biographer Ruth Skur has reviewed the book in this week's paper and is here to tell us about it. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you, Alex. I did mention there that you are obviously a biographer. You've written about Robespierre, John Aubrey, and most recently Napoleon and his gardens. And you begin your review by pointing out that Janet Malcolm was sceptical about the form and particularly about autobiography. Can you tell us just a bit more about what form her doubts took? Well, 
obviously she's talking, I think, about the crossover between biography and journalism. So she's got very interesting and serious reflections on the way in which writers construct their works. And if you're doing that around the subject of someone else's life, then obviously the interaction between you and a specific other person is extremely intense. I didn't really have that in my own practice because I do historical biographies, Mm. but Janet was very interested in the investigative aspect of biography and in a sense how she characterises it, you know, the snooping, the rifling through drawers, they're hoping to find out the secrets behind the bedroom door. So that was what she very famously characterised the biographer at their worst as actually trying to do. And then, of course, the genre of autobiography becomes even more complex because there it's your relationship to yourself. It's your self-presentation that is being foregrounded. And she was interested, again, in how that sort of spilled over in the subjects that she wrote about who, you know, they were historical biographies, Chekhov, for example, and his views about autobiography. Well, it's important with the Chekhov book, she doesn't actually present that as a biography. And I think with very good reason, it's a critical journey. And it's very much about engaging with his writing, her personal engagement with his writing and reflections on that. And that's why she begins the book with describing his own autobiographical phobia, as he called it, and the sort of spoof biography that he gave to an editor who wanted to include it in a journal. And she says, look, you know, after Chekhov has has really sort of sent up the genre and said, you know, this is pretentious and impossible thing to do to write about yourself. How can anybody else do something that's less playful? There's a point in the book that really struck me. She's sort of she's sort of pulling it apart, isn't she, even as she's writing about her own life. And there's a bit when she's about to tell you a detail of something and she says, actually, I'm going to withhold this. And I know that's really craven and that's not what I'm supposed to do, but I am going to withhold it because I'm allowed to, which I don't think I've ever read that in a book before. Absolutely. It's fascinating, isn't it? And I think that one of the things I tried to capture in my piece is the amount of withholding. I mean, it's almost the gaps are as interesting as the so-called revelations. And, and she's definitely playing with that all the way through. Part of that obviously comes from her very deep interest in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and practice of the narratives that are constructed in that context. And she's very, very deeply aware of that and also it's literary I mean you're absolutely right she said you know I'm the author and um, I get to choose what I put in and I'm just telling you I know the reason and I'm not going to give it to you. Of course getting down to the real brass tacks and the issue of autobiography often immediately comes up to the issue of parents doesn't it and I love that part of your review where you note that she says you know well is there can you really write about your parents because the bedroom door is locked and that is the you're never going to get further than that can you really know what happened and then she remembered that her parents didn't actually have a locked bedroom because they didn't actually share a bedroom ever after you know after they had emigrated from Prague or when they came to the US and that sort of playfulness she kind of stumped herself as it were. 
Yes, absolutely right. And it's I thought very interesting how she sort of circles around it. I mean, the first time she she mentions her mother, she says, well, look, I, I don't think I'm quite ready to write about my mother yet. So I'm just going to write about, you know, my aunt or my peripheral members of my family. And, and this will be a sort of warm up exercise. And then there is a chapter on her mother and all of these chapters very very short of course and then she comes back to it with another chapter sort of more on mother almost as though these are sort of cumulative sessions where she's engaging with the memories and shaping the memories and I sort of tried to explain that it's a very important part of the structure of the book I think that each of these pieces is standing alone they're sort of curated they have images almost all of them and sometimes there's quotes from other writers or from letters but they are like collages on the page. And do you think she almost thought of the writing as sort of I suppose captions in a way very extended captions and very detailed captions to go with these pictures at an exhibition? Oh, no, I don't think she imagined that this would turn into an exhibition of the photographs. And she's very funny about the photographs. I mean, some of them she she sort of selects because they're not very good photographs. Or she's saying, you know, what is everybody wearing in this photograph? This is just a terrible photograph. Mm. And so, no, I don't think this is a sort of run up at all to. Oh, no, I didn't know. I sort of meant it in a kind of figuratively speaking sort of thing that she almost the book was sort of like an exhibition that she was curating. Yeah, well, she's got that box of um, not good photos that she refers to. And, mm. and you get the impression that she's sort of pulling them out. And then if something sparks in her memory or she, she wants to come back to it, then it gathers some sort of substance and occasionally she'll look for other things. In that they're sort of, I think they're very reflective. I mean, it is like watching somebody go through their photograph album and, you know, perhaps pick out the things that means something to them. And that doesn't necessarily mean they would, a different family member would choose those photographs mm. or somebody mm. even more objective. But they are the ones that actually, when she looked at them, she had something to say about them and she was able to be creative around them. She's also, she's pretty unsparing, isn't she? And she says so sometimes. She does the mm. same kind of thing about her dad that we mentioned earlier. She says, there are other things I could say, but I'm not going to because I just want to, to Absolutely. have these lovely, lovely images of him. But she's quite unsparing about a lot of people and also about herself. There's an extraordinary bit when she says, Do you know, when I ask someone a question, even as a biographer, I'm not really very interested in the answer. She's <laughs> <laughs> an amazing, amazing thing to say. She just kind of puts it in there. And it is, it's very funny, but, you know, it's yeah. also pretty bold, isn't it? Well, I think that might be true about quite a lot of people. I mean, this idea that, you know, we are fundamentally interested in ourselves. I mean, I'm always saying this to my daughters, you know, they come and say, oh, I'm so embarrassed because this happened. I said, well, don't think you should worry about that because everybody else in the room will have just have been focusing upon themselves. They probably <laughs> didn't even notice. It is that terrible thing when you are as an interviewer listening back to the tape of you talking to your interviewee and you realize that you generally leap in when they're about to reveal something important and I notice myself often you know really carefully curating brilliant brilliant questions that I just think well this is a sort of the high watermark of interviewing and then clearly the interviewee just thinks what the hell is going on here this is just pure <laughs> nonsense they just kind of say they're very polite they're like, I, I suppose that's one way of looking at it and you have to move on so it's quite true we are just utterly self-focused there you are I've just demonstrated it 
Can I just say that we're genuinely interested in what Ruth is saying? Can I just put that down there for we're the record? We're genuinely interested in what you're saying. I think, Alex, you are a very reflective interviewer, and that's why you are such a brilliant interviewer. That's my view. The fact that you've just said what you've just said proves that you really do think about what you're doing when you interview someone. Well, this is marvellous. The focus is no longer on Janet Malcolm or indeed <laughs> it's, on you. it's on me. How wonderful. I'm going to quickly move us back to my plan has worked. I'm going to move us back though to the photographs themselves. Now, obviously, you know, we're in an audio medium and uh, one doesn't dwell too much on the visual. However, there are two absolutely beautiful photographs that accompany this piece. One of Janet Malcolm's father and one of her as a baby in her mother's arms but again you look at them and think well of course that's partial one is clearly a posed picture the other could be a snapshot but you don't know what efforts her father has gone into to curate that kind of composition it's so interesting isn't it you realize immediately that they are just pictures absolutely beautiful choices by the TLS and I was so thrilled when the proof came and those were the ones that have been chosen because I hadn't even really seen them side by side and I hadn't thought about them, you know, it, relationally like that once they were on the page. But the thing that really struck me is the astonishing composure of Janet as a very small baby. And you look at that photograph and she looks as though she's almost ready to talk and to sort of, she's looking at the camera, she's so alert, she's so interested. And I think they're wonderful choices. You're absolutely right. You're right. She's almost, it, there is a kind of playfulness, isn't there, in her even yes. then? I mean, I suppose we can't read too much into a baby's character when it's that little, but she is clearly very, very interested in what's going on. Absolutely. And I do believe there is continuity between what people are like as a very young babies or very young children and how they are later. I mean, obviously there's huge discontinuities as well, but there is something in terms of spirit and attitude and things. And I think when I look at that photograph, the sharp alertness and also actually joyfulness that is present in that baby's face is really wonderful. I have to ask you about the photograph of the tennis players, because this is almost at the other end of the spectrum of a sort of deliberate and composed picture, but it's so funny. Yes. Yes, it's wonderful. So that photograph took on a life of its own. The origin is, it's a photograph of two people on a tennis court with their backs to the camera. You can't even see all of them. And um, it sat on Janet's husband's desk for a very long time. And she thought, well, these must be people uh, very significant to him from the past. I don't know about. And after a while, she asked him, and he said, "Oh no, um, I just keep that photograph on my desk because it's such a terrible snapshot, and um, it you know was going to be chucked out, and uh, and I keep it to remind myself." And then she was reviewing, uh, writing about a book on the sort of avant-garde trend in photography for uh, snapshots and uh, the sort of, you know, inclusion of those into uh, what is considered artful. And as a very mischievous joke, she included this snapshot as one of the illustrations. And it was picked up and referred to in other serious discussions in photographic circles as to what the snapshot can contribute to the art of, of photography. All the time, Janet knowing perfectly well that this was just a, literally a, a random snapshot. And so she ends by sort of saying, you know, I, I built better than I knew. And, and I really look forward to the day when that snapshot will take up its place in an important collection. And I <laughs> shall take up mine in the annals of horsing around. <laughs> I 
love that. The horsing around, which is such a great way of saying it anyway, it's important to her, isn't it? That's the playfulness. That's the kind of, there's a lot of wit and humour and kind of slight irony and detachment yeah. and stuff. And she was extremely funny. I mean, a lot of people have written about her her pride in her beautiful apartment and her aesthetic and how wonderful that was. And, and I, I remember her once going away. She went to stay with someone and she came back and she said, well, you know, normally when I come back to this apartment, I think, oh, how wonderful to be home. And I love it so much. And it's so beautiful. But this time I came back and I just thought, oh, what a dump. <laughs> Narrator, it wasn't a dump. Was it? <laughs> it just wasn't a dumb. I mean, her her aesthetic sense. I mean, you write about her, well, her aesthetic absolutism. And I found that really interesting to think about. It made me wonder whether taste and morality somehow kind of overlaps when you think about personal writing, whether in a want of a better word, her scruples are not just only moral scruples, but also sort of aesthetic ones that to probe too far is a kind of unforgivable sort of vulgarity. Yeah, certainly she was very attuned to vulgarity and to what she would have considered vulgar either aesthetically or in our interactions with one another or indeed on the page or in you know in life in clothing or porcelain or things. The vulgar and um her rejection of it was definitely important to her but I mean I think what I understood which I hadn't fully understood before from reading this book is that she did question on occasions her own certainty about this sort of absolute aesthetic standard. So she says, look, this is a very interesting topic. I've inclined towards the idea of absolute aesthetic standards, but actually sometimes I just turn away from them. And I think that's very important to remember. She's not a sort of creature in any regard. She's open to the possibility uh, that she has got something wrong or that she will change her mind. Yeah, she mentions that quite a lot, doesn't she? She mentions it, there's a few times she looks back and says, and I realised I was completely wrong, and so I kind of reversed my position. In fact, there's a little bit at the end of one of the chapters called Discussion, where she lays out a little discussion for you. <laughs> and she she puts a question which you know might be seen as critical, and she answers it, as it were. And sometimes she goes, yes, you're absolutely right, I'm ashamed of myself, and just moves on to the next thing. That's very interesting you talk about that. That really did make me think of a therapeutic session or analysis, you know, that sort mm. of being in dialogue, finding out what you think or, or why you think it by being in a dialogue with someone. It's something you're almost, it's a taboo as a critic, though, isn't it? It's, you're almost not allowed to say that you reach judgments that you know are subjective I mean that's a, a sort of given I mean if you're having a response to a work of art yeah. but you then as a critic do think through your position as carefully as you possibly can and you state it and the idea of then disavowing it is sort of well, I don't know it kind of brings the edifice sort of tumbling down in a way doesn't it but of course you do change your mind sometimes or you yeah. see another point of view it's not really so much you think I was entirely wrong to have the response I did but you see another context another angle mm. have time for this week our thanks go to Gwendolyn Riley and Ruth Skur. and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardee with help from Alex Lee 
We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. <laughs>